Well, hey, today we are going to continue in our series called Live Strong, which is our study in the book of Philippians. And we're going to be looking today at Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. You go ahead and turn there to be ready for it when we get there. It is a powerful and a revealing scripture regarding our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Of all the questions that might be posed by modern man, none is more important than this. Who is Jesus Christ? It's no exaggeration to say that this is the central question of all history and the most important issue that anyone will ever face. Who is Jesus Christ? Where did he come from? Why did he come? And what difference does his coming have to do with my life? In the end, every person must deal with Jesus. No one can escape him. You can avoid the question, you can delay it, you can postpone it, you can stonewall all you want, you can pretend you didn't hear it, but sooner or later, you must answer the question. And it's certainly not a new question, it's as old as the coming of Christ to this earth. One time, Jesus asked his disciples, he said, who do people say that I am. And in Matthew chapter 16, they offered four responses. They said, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say that you're Elijah. Some say that you are Jeremiah. And some say you are one of the prophets. And across the centuries, the discussion has continued to this very day. Just get on the internet and you will find a wide variety of opinions on this matter in answer to that question. Who is Jesus Christ? Here are a few answers that I found in in chat rooms and other things online. He is a good man. He's a prophet. Some say he's a man just like any other man. Some say the son of God, a Galilean rabbi, a teacher of God's law, the embodiment of God's love, savior, a reincarnated spirit master, someone said, the ultimate revolutionary, the Messiah of Israel, a first century wise man, a fabrication of the early church, king of kings, a misunderstood teacher, lord of the universe, a deluded religious leader, son of man. The list goes on and on and on of what people think of Jesus. Over 2,000 years have passed and we still wonder about this man called Jesus. And that takes me back to Jesus and his disciples because after he asked his disciples, what do people think of me? He turned to his disciples and he said to them, but who do you say that I am? In the end, each one of us, ladies and gentlemen, we face that same question and we can't get away with quoting other people's opinions about this any longer. We've got to make up our own mind. So let's go back to the original question, who is Jesus Christ and how does your answer stack up with the scriptures? And that's an important second question. It's a vital second question that needs to be asked because it's not enough just to say, I believe in Jesus. Satan believes in Jesus. Millions of people claim to believe in Jesus, but they don't have a clue what the Bible has to say about him. Well, thankfully, in our text today, it contains a remarkably clear answer to the question, who is Christ Jesus? These seven verses that we're about ready to read comprise of a short course in Christology. 
Nearly all of the truth about Jesus is found in this verse, these verses that we're about ready to read. His eternal preexistence as God, his voluntary taking on of the human flesh, his coming to this earth as a servant, his humiliating death on the cross, and his exaltation in heaven when he returned. This passage that we're about to to read is called the Great Parabola because it, it reveals the entire career, if you will, of Christ Jesus. It begins in heaven and it continues with his descent to this earth and concludes with his triumphal return to heaven. So let's go through this passage together. Let's look at the key phrases that that Paul uses to describe Jesus, who he is and what he did. Philippians 2, 5 through 11, I'll be reading from the New King James Version. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's a mic drop moment right there. Nothing else needs to be said. As I read that scripture, I am reminded of the stark contrast between the life of Jesus while he lived on this earth compared to the majority of humanity. What I mean is we we clearly live in an upwardly mobile society. Our culture in the good old United States of America is one where we value success, we value wealth, achievement, prestige, all those things above all other things. The overarching goal for most Americans is upward mobility. There's an almost inbred desire within each one of us to upgrade, to upscale, to upswing. We are taught at a young age to move forward towards greater, more prosperous, more influential positions in this life. And when you mention words like downsizing or decrease, or demotion, it causes our blood pressure to rise and our, and our heart rate to skyrocket. I don't know if anybody has ever written a book on downward mobility, but I can sure you, assure you if they did, it probably wouldn't sell many copies. Even as a pastor, when I'm up here talking about victory and about blessings and about prosperity and how God blesses us when we bless others and we give to his kingdom, people hang on every word. But when you start talking about humility or, or servanthood or the greatest among you being, the, being the, the least when you serve others, that's a different story. Our scripture reference this morning is no doubt the greatest story of downward mobility that you have ever heard or ever will hear. And through it, what we see is Jesus' humility, which is a vital part of who he is. We see Jesus divesting himself of his heavenly glory and honor and becoming just like one of us. 
But believe me when I tell you that divesting ourselves of anything we've earned or attained, that's not the American way. It goes against the very grain of our culture. So what Jesus did was so countercultural and so foreign to the human mind that it makes our head literally spin. But it's one huge depiction that helps us to clearly understand Jesus. Yes, it definitely shows us his heart and it shows us his depth of love for his creation that is difficult for us to sometimes grasp, but it also helps to solidify our understanding of a loving savior. And this morning, I wanna ask all of you to look deep into your hearts because I have a sneaking suspicion that upward mobility has a grip on many of us in ways that we probably don't even or aren't even aware of. Honestly, these values that I'm going to set before you this morning as lived out through the life of Christ Jesus, many Christians will never have the spiritual maturity to really embrace. And others won't even be able to receive it with a joyful heart because it really challenges us. This is gonna challenge us this morning. I'm just letting you know that ahead of time. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about Paul's words for me to live as Christ. And of course, Paul could say that truthfully because his life was all about Jesus. So as followers of Christ, this scripture not only helps us to answer the question of who Jesus is, but it also shows us what living for Jesus means. So as we begin to break down this uh, scripture passage this morning, it begins with a verse that has given us nosebleeds for, for centuries, Philippians 2.5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. That's the verse I want you to memorize this week. I told you we'd pull out a verse. I can't ask you to do the whole thing, it's too long. We, it's hard memorizing something like that, but this is the one I want you to remember. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Paul says, if you want to be a true follower of Christ, then express your Christianity the same way that Jesus did. Think like Jesus thought. Act like Jesus acted have the same attitudes that Jesus had. Paul says, do you really know what thinking and acting and, and having the mind of Christ looks like? It's a dedication to downward mobility for the purpose, the express purpose of glorifying God and serving other people. The secret to being great in the eyes of God or to bring a smile to the face of God is to live with the mindset of Christ and for us to mirror his example. How? By dedicating our lives to the downward slope that lifts Christ up and lifts others up through serving them. Then in verse six through eight, it shows us the, the depth of Jesus' dedication towards downward mobility. Because in these verses, Jesus signs up for seven demotions. He voluntarily descends the ladder into greatness in God's eyes. And where does he start? At the top, at the very top. Verses five through six. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. 
And where does he, excuse me, Paul begins here by stressing the eternal pre-existence of our Lord and Savior as Jesus as God. And please understand that before Jesus came to this earth, he's always existed. He existed in heaven. This is Paul's version of John's writing in John 1, 1, 1, John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word in this scripture is Jesus. The phrase being in the form of God is nothing less than a direct assertion of Jesus' deity. In Greek philosophy, the word translated form means the real essence of a person or of a thing. In this context, it means that Jesus possessed the specific character of God. Whatever it is that makes God God, Jesus possessed that same essence. Whatever you can say about God, you can likewise say about Jesus. He was all that God is. He possessed all that God had. He was 100% God and nothing less. God's omnipotence was his. God's sovereignty was his. God's holiness was his. God's eternity was his, as well as his wisdom and his justice. In addition to that, Jesus was absolutely equal with God in every way. Jesus was not an assistant to God. He was not the vice president to God, nor a junior partner to God. Jesus is a full-fledged member of the triune Godhead, equal with the Almighty Father in every way, shape, and form from eternity past. In Isaiah 6, when the prophet saw the vision of angels bowing down, singing, holy, 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 the angels were glorifying Jesus every bit as much as they were glorifying God the Father and the Holy Spirit. You do know that Jesus was present and involved in the creation of the world, don't you? He has ruled and he has reigned from eternity past. So why is it that I'm stressing this point? Because you'll never, ever be able to bow in worship until you truly understand his point of origin. When Jesus descended that ladder into greatness in God's eyes, he started at the very top. And I want you to come to grips with the fact that we're talking about Jesus here, who is fully equal with God, and that makes the next statement all that much more remarkable. Verse six, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. I want you to understand the weight of that statement. Here is Jesus fully enjoying the worship and the adoration of the universe he created, fully God and a full partner in the triune Godhead. He didn't try to hold on to his glory. Instead, he willingly laid it aside. He did not assert his rights, although he had every right to do so. And this forms the foundation of everything else that Paul has to say about him. It also tells us what Jesus was thinking before he was born in Bethlehem. There was no, there was no compulsion. There was no argument, no claiming of his prerogatives. There was no pleading with the father, no, please send someone else. He voluntarily traveled the distance between heaven and a bloody cross. 
And he did it willingly. That's devotion number one. I'm telling you about seven. Devotion number one is that Jesus relaxed his hold on his heavenly position. And that leads me to ask this question. How willing are you and I to relax our grip on, on, on those positions and those possessions and those prerogatives that have been bestowed upon us by our Heavenly Father? Most of us would put up a real fight if we had to part with something that was truly precious to us. We hold on to things. We clutch to our power. I'm talking about things that we were able to obtain like position and titles, possessions and resources, time and energy. Even the most mature Christians must admit that we wrestle with relaxing our grip on those things that we hold dear for the sake of Christ and for his kingdom. It's, it's a, a real challenge once our grip is tightened around something that, that we value and something that we appreciate and love. And yet, here we have Jesus, the holder of the ultimate position in all of the universe. Everywhere he turns, cherubim are crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled with his glory. And Jesus says, I'll relax my grip on that. I will take the demotion, if in doing so will please my father and the people that I love. So down that ladder, he starts. Look at verse six and seven. Who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal to God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. That's demotion number two. Jesus relaxed his hold on his heavenly position. In fact, you'll see the carrying out of demotion number one in demotion number two because Jesus literally emptied himself of his divine privileges. First, Christ emptied himself. Some trans translations say made himself nothing. In contemporary terms, that means that the Son of God became a nobody, in case you're wondering what that means. When Christ came to this earth, he laid aside his divine insignia, I want you to imagine a five-star general taking off his uniform and going in street clothes and walking among his troops. They wouldn't know. Is he still the general? Yes, he is. Is he in uniform? No, and because he's not in uniform and have those stars on, the guys don't know him from Adam. He's like anybody else. Christ came wearing the uniform of common man while bearing at the same time within himself the rank of Almighty God. How do you wrap your mind around that? Who does that kind of a thing? Now that doesn't mean that he became any less God. He is still fully God at that time. It simply means that he laid aside his privileges. He laid aside those things that would keep him from becoming a man, and he did all of this voluntarily. Nobody stripped this away from him. He, he didn't do this under protest. He willingly divests himself of that which would keep him from becoming a man and fulfilling his mission. When you think about it, what a violent and a profane transition that must have been for Jesus. Let me read verse 7 and 8. You'll see what I'm talking about. And understand, we are talking about the God of the universe here but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men 
and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Here we see demotion number three. Jesus takes on the role of becoming a bondservant to mankind. Jesus took on the very nature of a servant. This means he entered humanity at the lowest rung of the ladder. First as a baby, a helpless baby, born into a family, but then he became a humble servant to you and I. I want you to notice the word form there again. He didn't merely appear as a servant, he took on himself all that a servant does. He didn't stop being God when he became a servant. He, he put on servanthood without putting off his Godhead, Godhood, excuse me. He, he laid aside his outward glory while, or, or excuse me, yeah, he, he, he laid aside his deity while being a humble servant. Verses seven in the first part of verse eight says this, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Here's demotion number four. Jesus takes on the likeness of a man. Jesus appeared in human likeness. He fully and truly became a man without ceasing to be God. That means that to all outward appearances, Jesus was merely a man. But in reality, he was more than a man. He was God in human flesh. And then there's demotion five. It says Jesus takes on the appearance of a man. If you and I had seen Jesus walking this earth in the first century, you wouldn't have said, look, there goes the son of God, because he didn't look any different than anybody else. He was a man, but the rest of his identity was hidden from view. And this boggles my mind, because the, the transcendent creator takes on the appearance and the likeness of his creation and becomes fully man. And understand, he does not appear on the landscape of this earth as an emperor, or as a statesman, or as a rich ruler, but he comes as a newborn baby. He is born in a stable to blue-collared Jewish people. And the scripture reminds us that he was like us in all ways, except that he was without sin. Imagine the, the omnipotent, the omnipresent, the omniscient second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, who has always been and always will be now experiencing the binding confines of his flesh. Jesus is now walking in and out of doors. He's riding on the backs of animals. He is now eating and sleeping. Imagine the God of the universe saying to Joseph and Mary, uh, okay, mom, okay, dad, whatever you say. He's God. Think of the degradation Jesus must have felt when he traveled around while, while the mere men that he created would not bow down in respect, let alone any kind of worship. Wherever he traveled in all eternity in the past, there were millions of angels that cried out, holy, holy, holy. Now things are different. Jesus is now rubbing shoulders with the humanity that he has created. And men are now yelling at him, out of my way. Move it, buddy. Who do you think you are, something special? Well, you're not. Just stay in your lane, Jesus, just stay in your lane. 
There's an enormous chasm between the transcendent God and human beings like you and me. And yet Jesus was willing to do this. So he goes down this ladder from equality with God where he relaxes his hold on his heavenly position. He empties himself of his divine privileges. He becomes a bond servant. He takes on the appearance of a man and he takes on the likeness of a man. And he does all of this for a bunch of obstinate, arrogant, sinful people, for all of humanity, who refuse most of our lives to even tip our hat his direction. But he isn't done with his demotions. There are two more left. First part of verse eight, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. See, it wasn't enough to to humble himself and become a man. So here's demotion number six, Jesus became obedient to death. Here's Jesus, the one who breathed life into everything that lives. Jesus, who sustains the very air that you and I are breathing right at this moment. The same Jesus who stands toe to toe with the power of death. And he says with a quiet and a controlled voice, you win. This time you win. It's like it's high noon at the OK Corral and the guy in the white hat refuses to even draw his weapon. No, what he does is he drops his holster onto the ground. Go ahead, shoot me. I'm better than you. I made you, but you can go ahead and shoot me. You see what's happening here? That the eternal life giver is giving up his life. And you can almost imagine the angels at that moment saying, hey, hey, Jesus, man, that is far enough. Don't go there. But there's one more demotion. Look at the last verse, last half of verse eight. He humbled himself to become obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. How does Jesus die? Does he drink hemlock and lie back on a nice soft sofa? No. Does he take a cyanide pill that would ensure slumber going into his his death? No. This seventh demotion should be read with great reverence. And with trembling voices, the God of the universe, Jesus accepted death on the cross. We have forgotten what crucifixion in the first century looks like. It was a punishment that was so barbaric that it was reserved for the very worst criminals. No Roman citizen could be crucified except on direct order from the emperor himself. To the Jews, it was the worst possible fate. Deuteronomy 21:23 pronounced a curse upon anyone who hung on a tree, and it is again mentioned in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Well, verse 8 tells us the depth of Christ's humiliation. He came from the top, and he went to the bottom rung of the ladder. No one was ever higher, and yet no one will ever go lower than what Jesus did. Talk about dramatic differences. Death on a cross is hard for you and I to understand because we've sanitized the cross. We have, uh, we've domesticated it. We've gold-plated it and we wear it around our necks and we put it on our stationery and we, we hang ornate crosses in our sanctuaries and we put them on the top of our steeples with bright lights shining up on them. All of this would have been unthinkable in the first century. 
Crucifixion was so terrible that the word was not even spoken in polite company. If we want a modern counterpart to crucifixion, we should hang a a photo of a gas chamber from Auschwitz in front of our sanctuary or put a, hang a noose up there for everyone to see or an electric chair with a man dying in agony with his face covered in smoke rising from his head. The very thought sickens us, but that is exactly what the cross meant for Jesus. This mode of execution was so horrible that it didn't just simply kill men, it tortured them slowly. So that every sensation of dying could be experienced in the fullest measure. And while all of this is going on, common created men and women could walk by and spit on him and laugh at him and curse at him and cast ugly accusations at him. This is another part that made the crucifixion such a horrible deal. This is just about as low as any imagination can conceive. It is the basement of human debasement. And it doesn't go any lower than where Jesus went. He started in a position that could be no higher, but he ended up in a position that could be no lower. That is the path that Jesus chose. And yet our human nature is always to point up, which explains why the best-selling books on the market are rags to riches stories. They are bottom to top books. They are depth to height books. Paul is saying, come on, believers in the 21st century, wake up. You're deeper than that, aren't you? You're not sucked into believing that this is your purpose in life, are you? Believe me when I tell you, you, your needle won't point up all the time in your life. Now that you know Jesus, you have far more substance in your soul than that. Paul says the most important story in this world is the story of your Savior. It's a riches to rags story, burial rags. It is a, it is a top to bottom story, who demoted himself, a God who demoted himself seven times to the point of death. Why would he do that? It was voluntarily, he voluntarily downscaled everything. He did that so that the penalty of your sin and my sin could be paid for once and for all by his blood. And it's the greatest story that you will ever hear, and it is the greatest story that I've ever had the privilege of sharing. But more importantly, ladies and gentlemen, it is absolutely true. This really happened in history. And there are thousands of eyewitnesses to this. And there's written historical documentation to back up everything that I have explained to you. And guess what? He did it out of love. And because Jesus did what he did, look at what the Father did to honor him in verses 9 through 11. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here is the final stage of the career of Jesus, the Son of God. Having returned to heaven in triumph, God highly exalted him. The phrase means that God gave back to him all that he had relinquished 
when he left heaven and came to earth. He did gain something, however, because when he came back to heaven, he had something he didn't have before, and that was his humanity. He left as the Son of God, but he returned as the Son of God as well as the Son of Man. We now have a man in heaven, Christ Jesus, and he is our advocate, and he is our friend. Verse 9 also tells us that God gave him the name above every name. What did God give him that he didn't have before? He couldn't give him supreme glory because he already had supreme glory. He couldn't give him deity. He already had that. But the one thing that he didn't have that he has now by virtue of his triumphal entry back into heaven is that God ordained that one day he will universally be recognized as the king of kings and the Lord of all heaven and earth. Many people didn't recognize him when he walked on this earth. Today, people still don't know who he is. But the day is coming, ladies and gentlemen, when that will forever change. When that day finally arrives, the scriptures say that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I think we need to understand that this is not merely figurative, but it is a sober and a literal reality for every human being. All creation, all creation, all creation will physically bow before the Son of God and we will acknowledge his lordship. That means every atheist, that means every Muslim, every celebrity who has ever publicly mocked his name, every world leader, every human being from past to now will bow. And please note how universal this will be. It will include all creatures. It says in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That would include angels and saints in heaven and those living on earth and the dead and the demons and Satan himself who are under the earth. No one will be left out. Everyone will be included in this universal declaration that Jesus Christ is Lord. Bowing our knee to submission means that we are submitting to him as Lord. Confessing with the tongue means that there is no other Lord other than Christ Jesus. So fix this, this thought clearly in your mind, ladies and gentlemen. Jesus will have the last word. He will be vindicated before the entire universe and every human being who has ever lived and walked the face of this earth. Even his enemies will bow before him. And in the end, no opposition against him will stand. There's coming a day when this world will wake up to who Jesus was and who Jesus is, and they will come to realize that he is Lord over everything. And for those who don't wake up in time, the book of Revelation says that in that moment of their awareness, those who have known about him their entire life but have ignored him or denied his very existence and in some cases have even publicly mocked his name, they are going to cry out for the mountains to fall upon them. That's how great a depth of their grief and their regret will be. You see, Jesus is who he claimed he was. And yet so many people still deny this truth. And for those who never honored him or yielded their life to his lordship 
or bowed in his presence, they will be bound by eternal regret. For those of us who know him as Lord, at his appearing, we are all gonna join together in unison and we are going to sing a thunderous rendition of that song that we used to sing when I was a kid. He is Lord, he is Lord, he is risen from the dead, and he is Lord. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And all throughout eternity, we are gonna be glad that we lived for his glory. So why do you think it is that Paul describes these seven demotions of Jesus? Was it to remind us of the price that Jesus was willing to pay to become our savior? Yes, certainly that's it. But, but I believe it was not the only purpose that Paul wrote this passage. I think Paul's other purpose was to call every believer in Philippi who he wrote this letter to, as well as those of us in Red Bluff, California. He's calling us to a life of downward mobility. And that means if you call yourself a Christian, You apply verse five to your life. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And of course, we've just seen the path of the seven demotions that Jesus just took. And he does so as a way of calling people, including people like David Blythe, to get in some kind of a similar Christian AA program so we can get off of this cultural drug called upward mobility and begin to have our minds renewed by the, to the mind of Christ. And, and, and the way that this happens is by a dedication to decreasing, to demoting ourselves, to dying for the sake of others and for the glory of God. And please, ladies and gentlemen, do not be deceived. Don't think for a minute that there's another way for you to give God glory than through you depleting yourself in some way, shape, or form. Don't be deceived into thinking that that Jesus advanced his kingdom through these gut-wrenching demotions, but somehow that you and I will be assigned a task of kingdom advancement through promotion or through upscale living. Ideas like that are carnal ideas. They are shallow ideas. They, They are immature. And ideas like that have to die. Jesus wasn't only sealing our salvation through these demotions. He was modeling for us the kind of route necessary for each one of us to take if we mean business about being great in the eyes of our Heavenly Father. Show me how the kingdom of God can advance without somebody divesting themselves of time or energy or effort, or money, or service, or love. You just can't. Goes completely against the gospel message. So for those of us who wanna be filled with Christ, Jesus must increase, and we've gotta start to decrease. God says, here's the deal, I will offer it to you. Look very closely at the legacy of Jesus' seven demotions. I'm going to arrange a program for you just like that. And if you love me with all of your heart and soul, and you trust me enough to to relax your grip on your possessions and your positions and your time and your resources, and if you will be sensitive 
to the, to the moving of the Holy Spirit and look for opportunities to descend your ladder into kingdom greatness by serving others and by glorifying God, I promise you, God says, I will exalt you. I will also lift you up just like I did with Jesus. I will reward you in ways that will literally boggle your mind on this earth and throughout all eternity. And I promise you, it will be worth it. So to my church family, what is your response to this challenge of downward mobility? Will you continue to clutch and cling to your positions and your possessions and your prerogatives and your time and your talent and your energy? Will you continue to climb the world's success ladder up, 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 up to obscurity in God's eyes? Or will you begin to follow Jesus' example of descending the ladder into kingdom greatness? Will you begin to listen to, to the leadings from the Holy Spirit that challenge you to decrease or to downscale or to give or to die to self and start fully living for Christ Jesus? What do you want more? The world's whipped cream and cherry here and now? Or do you want God's infinite treasures in due season? As for me, I've decided I'm gonna head down that ladder. I don't know all the specifics. I don't know everything that I will have to face that I haven't already faced, but I'm confident in my downward direction. And I just wanna to say to you this morning, I hope to see you at the bottom. <laughs> Scott, will you come forward? I'd also like to ask the ushers to come up and we're gonna pass out communion emblems as we pre prepare to take communion together. I think it's only fitting that we are taking communion together because as we have just read about Jesus' downward demotion to even death on the cross, we are once again reminded of his greatness, that a king would come and would humble himself and would literally die for you and me. And the Bible tells us that we are to remember this act of, of immense love. And that's, of course, what we do during communion time. We remember and we honor the one who gave us not just life, but who also provided us with a means to salvation, to eternal life. And uh, while doing so, it is also a time for each one of us to reflect on our own lives. It's a time when we look deep into our hearts and determine if we are truly living our lives in a God-honoring way. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 11, 27 through 29, therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. What that tells me is that we all need to examine our own hearts, make sure that there is not things going on within us that would make our participation in this sacred moment to be done in an inappropriate, or as the Bible says, in unworthy way. And this message today really sums it all up for us because this message served two purposes this morning. The first one was, it's a picture for believers on how to live a God-honoring life. 
to show us that in God's kingdom, things are truly different. That in order for us to move upward, we need to move downward in the things of God's kingdom. God's economy runs completely opposite of that of the world. And that's why so many people have no interest in the things of God because it goes against their, their belief system. They have convinced themselves that, that treasures and success that we attain here in this world are the most important things and they really believe that this is as good as it gets. But if Jesus revealed anything to us is the ultimate res result of what he received and what we will receive at the end of this age through total submission and proclamation that he is king and king, king of kings and lord of lords, there's nothing to compare to that. You know, when you look at all of the criticism that sometimes we take for serving the Lord, the joking, the put-downs that we receive from, from unbelievers who tell us that we are serving a God who doesn't exist, for all the times that we are told how foolish we are and how many times are we made fun of by the media and by Hollywood and famous voices of, of atheism out there? One day, in spite of all of that, we will receive a great reward. No, people won't be bowing at our feet. We will all be bowing at the feet of Jesus. And it will be in a place where eye does not, has not seen or ear has not heard of the wonderful beauty and the majesty and the peace that will exist at that time. And we will live whole and complete lives in mansions that Jesus said he has prepared for those who love and serve him. We will want for absolutely nothing because one day we will be living in the very presence of God. And everything, friends, that you may have given up by serving the Lord on this earth will be multiplied in other greater blessings, things that we can't even fathom in our mortal minds on the other side. And we will realize that the difficulties that we have endured by professing Jesus as Lord and Savior on this earth will be far eclipsed by what we gain in heaven. Secondly, this message is also for those who do not know Jesus as Lord. And here's your choice, which is the same. Ever since Jesus resurrected, you can confess him now with joy as Lord and Savior, or you will one day confess him as Lord in shame and in fear. You see, not all will be saved, but everyone will confess Jesus as Lord. You were made by Jesus. You owe your very existence to him, and one day you will stand before him as judge. Sooner or later, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And you can bow down today and allow him lordship over your life, or you can face him one day as your judge. But at that time, you won't be able to escape him. The choice is solely up to you. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. So will it be done in love and adoration or will it be done in fear, knowing that you missed out on the most important decision you've ever made in your life? It's a decision that you can make today. 
Matthew 11:28. Jesus said these words. He said, "Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest." He is your Savior. He loves you. He invites you to come to Him today. He gave Himself, gave His life for you, so that today could be the day of salvation for those who don't know Him. Tomorrow is the day of judgment. So won't you come to him today? So we're going to pray. It's going to be a time of silent prayer. All that you're going to hear is the music playing behind me. And I want to ask you during this prayer time to look deep into your heart. Determine if you are truly living the kind of life that is bringing honor and glory to what Jesus has done for you. And I want to ask you to pray to take on the mind of Christ and start to forgive because you have been forgiven and walk with a purpose greater than what you ever had before. Determine if you are harboring unforgiveness or hatred towards someone else. Determine if you're living kind of a harsh kind of a life, if you are, if you are one of those who are unapproachable and that your attitude about life in general is, is less than Christ-like. When you determine those things, that's when you pray out to God and you say, I don't want to be this way anymore. I ask you to forgive me, Lord. I ask you to become the Lord of my life. Change my direction. Give me the power through your spirit to make the right kind of choices, the kind of choices that will honor what you've done for me. God is giving you another opportunity today to receive him as Lord and Savior. He's extending his grace to you now. My prayer is that you will receive him today. Let's bow our heads in a time of silent prayer, and I want you all to pray out to God in your own way and in your own words. Father, you've heard our words, and more importantly, you've read our hearts. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the forgiveness of our sin, we pray that the joy of what you've done for us will outwardly be seen within us and it will compel us to lead others to you. Thank you for hearing our prayers, Lord. Thank you for allowing us to clear up our shortcomings with you. And thank you for the forgiveness of sin that many have received this morning as they've asked. So we ask, Lord, that you will bless these communion emblems that we are about to receive that represent your body and your blood. In Jesus' name, amen. On the night that Jesus was arrested and betrayed, later to be crucified, he had a final meal with his disciples and he took the bread and he broke it and he gave thanks to God for it. Breaking of the bread was representative of his body that would soon be broken. The Bible tells us that he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. It goes on also to say that by his stripes that he took, the beating that he took, we are healed. So when he breaks the bread, he gives each one of his disciples one and he says, this is my body, which is broken for you. Whenever you do this, he said, do so in remembrance of me, meaning remember what I'm about to do for you. 
So as you eat this bread this morning, I want you to be reminded of the bruised and battered body of our Lord and Savior, beaten beyond all recognition. The life that he took, gave was sacrificed for you, and the stripes that he bore were for your healing. You made the bread. Then he took the cup, which represented the blood that he would soon shed and would soon be spilled. It's the blood that would atone for the world's sin of all mankind. And he said, this, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. He said, as often as you drink this, do it, do so in remembrance of me. So as you drink this juice, I want you to remember the precious blood of the Lamb of God that poured out, spilled out for the forgiveness of your sin. You may drink the juice. Will you please stand with us as we sing.
Father, we thank you for Jesus. Jesus did for us what no one else would. No one else could. And when we read about what he left to come and walk among us and be a, a mortal man in a body encased in a, in a human flesh suit and take all of the abuse and ultimate death on the cross for us, we can only realize that that was done out of a tremendous love for every human being that ever existed. Thank you for the love of Christ. Thank you for the blood that was shed to atone for our sin. Thank you that we have a savior and we are now promised eternal life in the presence of Almighty God when we die or when Jesus decides to return for us. But we thank you for the promises of your word. We stand upon them this morning. And Father, I pray that in our hearts, we will always understand that to go down the ladder rung for Christ is the only way. That we would humble ourselves before you, God, and realize we are not all that we think that we are. We are just humble servants of the Almighty God, and when we start living that out in our everyday life, what blessing comes from that. And we thank you for that blessing. Just remind us, God, of, of our position in this world. We are here to serve. We are servants of the Almighty God. And that means we're gonna get stepped on every once in a while. That means we are gonna be mocked and we are gonna be ridiculed, but when compared to what you endured, it is nothing. When we realize what you have promised for us and what stands there for us to, to attain when our time is done. So thank you for that, Father. As we go our separate ways today, I pray that your Holy Spirit would go with us, guiding and directing our steps, the places we go, the things that we do, the conversations that we have, those conversations would be designed to build others up and not tear down, that we would walk around as bright lights in a very dark world, and that that bright light is the goodness and the love of God that shines through us. I pray that it would shine so brightly that people would come up and ask us, what is it that's different about you? And then you open that door, Father, for us to share your goodness with them. I pray for divine appointments for every one of us this week until we meet together again where we'll be able to share your goodness with someone else. And when those doors open, God, give us the courage to walk through and know that you would give us the words to speak. It would draw people's attention to the cross of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray between now and the time we gather together again, you would keep us safe from sickness and disease and illness. Keep us safe from accidents that might befall us so that we can come together again as a church family and to worship you in spirit and in truth. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your precious spirit that indwells us and guides and directs us in our life. As we go our separate ways, Father, let us go in love. And I ask these things in the precious and holy name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen and amen. Thank you for being here today.